Plundergrounds, Episode 150, The Beginning. Plundergrounds, Plundergrounds, welcome back to a brand new show. Ray's gonna take you where you didn't know you wanted to go. Fantasy and dungeon delve, science fiction, watch yourselves. beginning is a very delicate time. Know then that it is the year 10,191. The known universe is ruled by the Padishah Emperor Shaddam IV, my father. In this time, the most precious substance in the universe is the spice melange. The spice extends life. The spice expands consciousness. The spice is vital to space travel. I couldn't resist playing that clip. Uh, It was the first thing I thought of when I saw that the first word for RPG a day 2020 was beginning. Now, if you've been listening to my podcast for a year or you were listening at this time last year, you'll realize that when it comes to the RPG word a day challenge, I'm a big cheater. Um, mostly, I don't want to try your patience with a whole bunch of really tiny episodes about specific words, especially if I don't have something to say or much to say about one of them. So instead of forcing that, I'm just going to do uh, a week's worth at a time and either do all seven words or just pick a few that I like. And today that word or the be- the beginning word is beginning. <laughs> and that's probably the one I'm going to spend the most time on. So the beginning has lots of meanings, has lots of contexts that I want to address. Um, first of all, there was some time ago that, uh, gosh, Back in the 2000s, I did a little bit of a, a podcast drop-in for another gaming podcast, and it was about using old-time radio drama in your games. And one of the things that I talked about there was the tool of having uh, like introductory, having an introductory theme or bit of text that you read that sort of signals the beginning of a game. And I still think that's a great idea. I don't use it much. Maybe I should listen to my own advice and start trying that. But it was specifically for in-person games, a way of signaling the the jump from, uh, you know, getting a beer, or, uh, eating snacks, or just talking about your week into the game, right? Some kind of hard uh, or or um, uh, some kind of signal, some kind of hard signal that that indicates that changeover that gets everybody ready to game and throws their mind into a new state. When I was teaching, there used to be this uh, tool called the soaker activity that I liked where you would walk into the classroom and realize that like not only all your students, but you yourself have all these unfinished things running around in your head, unfinished conversations, unfinished thoughts. And so you're still playing out all these things. You carry all that into the classroom with you. It's not like magically once the the hour starts that everything is different. So you would do this thing called a soaker activity and it really doesn't much matter what it was. It didn't have to relate to the class material at all. What, what it did matter was that it was engaging for everyone uh, and got everyone thinking kind of intently about one thing. And at the end of that, and that it had a finish, right? Because at the end of it, what you want to do is have a, have a, a thing that everybody focuses on very intensely for a few seconds or a few minutes. And then at, 
and then it wraps up. It has a clear ending. And then when it's ended, that has the, the trick of emptying everyone's minds, right? They're ready for the next thing because the, you've crowded out the old stuff with this intense activity and that intense activity had a clear ending. So now you've got blank slates and you're ready to go. You're all focused on the thing at hand. And I think that kind of activity could be really good for gaming. I have to think some about what that would be. Um, one of the ones I used in my classroom was there was an old uh, murder mystery game. And I saw somebody online doing this recently where they would post these up, but basically you'd have a card and it would say something like a uh, woman woke up in the morning to see the sunrise and killed herself. And, uh, this is a very macabre game. Um, and then, uh, so one person would read that and then they would have the answer to what actually happened. And everybody else has to ask yes or no questions until you get there. So, um, in that case, it, it was, uh, I believe that a woman was part of a cult that believed the world was going to end on the day before. Um, and you know, so there was, there's these kind of like little mysteries that you've got to solve. And once people, once you solve them, they're, they're done. Um, and so I, I think in gaming, um, just playing, uh, uh, a bit of music that's always the same or reading a thing that's always the same or having a little ritual. Uh, I know that, um, uh, there was one gaming group. Oh, it was somebody I played with in Gary Con that they did a little toast at the beginning of every game and anything that kind of captures your attention that puts everybody on the same page and gets them ready to game. Great idea, right? So that's one context for the beginning. In another context, I think about my beginning, uh, the beginning of my experiences with role-playing games. And I haven't ever talked much about this on the air. I always mean to, and I don't know. I just never, I think there's just too much. I get a little overwhelmed thinking about all the cool things in my life that I want to talk about um, that led to, that led to my interest in just general nerdery and gaming. And I would just say that like, first of all, I, I came from a games playing family. So we lived out in the middle of nowhere and um, we would often, you know, get snowed in or whatever. And we would play board games. So we were always playing games. Um, and I was always a reader. So I started reading and drawing early on and um, listening to story records and all these kind of things that would sort of presage or set me up to be a fan of fantasy stuff, um, uh, of role-playing games. But let's talk about specifically the transition from 1976 into 77 and 78. 1976 was the bicentennial year. And in a lot of ways, I think of that as kind of the end of my innocence. <laughs> it was the kind of, it was getting close to the end of my grade school years. I was, uh, I guess I was eight at the time. So it's not like I'm really, you know, ending grade schools, but it, I was, you know, you're growing up. Right. And so I was starting to have a little more adult thoughts and, and just, uh, thinking less about thinking more about my future and, and, um, you know, who I wanted to be and all that kind of thing. So in 1977, Star Wars came out. I saw that in the theater. Um, that was an amazing thing. I uh, got only got to go because my brother and his friends were going and they couldn't drive yet. Uh, my brother's older than I am by three years. And one of the, one of his friend's fathers was taking them and uh, he agreed that I, I could sit with him, right? So that all the others could sit up front where they wanted to sit. And then I would sit with him so I wouldn't bother them. But uh, but I got to go. And oh my gosh, what, what an amazing experience. I remember very clearly having to use the bathroom so bad, like at the end, I, you know, I drank a big um, pop from the big soda. That, that's my Indiana roots coming out there again, pop, right? Um, 
I drunk a, a large soda from the concession stand and was just dying. But of course I wasn't about to miss any of that. So I remember, um, once, um, once the X-Wing, you know, once Luke Skywalker shot the missile down the hole of the Death Star, oh, spoiler alert, <laughs> um, and blows up the Death Star, and uh, Vader's ship goes spiraling out into space, that I darted for the restroom, peed as fast as I could. Uh, it's always a funny thing to try to, like, speed up peeing. Um, and then, uh, you know, ran, ba- ran back in, washed my hands, probably didn't. I was eight. Let's be serious. Um, uh, <laughs> let's, but let's hope I did. Washed my hands and then ran back into the theater and caught the awards ceremony. So I missed the part where he jumps out of this, the uh, X-Wing and shouts Carrie by accident. But, uh, yeah, Star Wars was, was, um, amazing, informative. Um, that was the year I discovered Steve Jackson's Ogre, um, the game about a cybernetic tank on a battlefield in the future. Um, I also discovered Melee and Wizard and, um, I believe it was the next year Death Test, which were the beginning of the fantasy trip, kind of a hex-based skirmish level combat game, which eventually led to GURPS, honestly. Um, presage GURPS. Just at that time, Steve Jackson, this is the US Steve Jackson, was writing for metagaming, a, a, a game company out of Texas. And that, that did these cool little bagged games. They were, I feel like they were six or seven dollars at the time. And it was just came in a little like you would think it was like almost like a Ziploc bag with a rule book, a fold-out map, a sheet of cardboard counters that you could cut out. And um, and, and often a, a little tiny pair of dice or, or a die. So um, the things I was reading in this year, I was reading Lord of the Rings. I was reading Wizard of Earth Sea, um, that series. I was reading the Dragon Riders of Pern, uh, a bunch of other stuff too. But I just really remember that was the age when I got heavily into the science fiction book club, which was an amazingly formative part of my childhood. I can still remember pouring over their adver- advertisements and their um, uh, their circulars that they would send to you to pick books out for the next month. Um, it was also the year that my brother moved into his own room. We'd been sleeping in bunk beds up to that point and he got a stereo and I got a nine inch little black and white TV. And we, you know, that was a big deal for us. Uh, we played a lot of board games. So that year it would have been like carrier strike probe pit payday inventors risk Dutch blitz masterpiece. Uh, there was a game about car Oh, dealer's choice a game about dealing cars off a used car lot, which was hilarious. Uh, Rook, and that was also the year that we sold our mini bike to buy the Atari 2600 console. We had bought Pong before that in like 75. Uh, but we had this old bright orange tube steel chainsaw engine driven uh, mini bike. And we got rid of that uh, so that we could buy the, I'm not sure our parents probably helped us because they probably didn't want us driving that mini bike around. Although we got another one later. Um, I had a, I had some form of motorized uh I call them motorcycles, but they were usually not full on motorcycles. I had some form of that all the way up through high school. Um, and then in 1978 was the year I discovered D and D homes, basic, the blue book, you know, in the box and quickly moved from there into a D and D. I bought the traveler, little black box. Um, I got, I remember getting that Christmas, getting that little red handheld electronic game called Merlin, which would just had a, basically it looked like a little phone. It just had like nine, 
touch buttons and and like uh, one at the bottom, I think. So 10 buttons and all. And there were games that you could play on that. And some of them were like, I don't know, space attack games and stuff, but they were all very abstracted, right? Um, it was uh, about that time I started visiting Aladdin's Castle at the mall, which was a huge arcade chain in the US uh, and playing, you know, Battlezone and all these kinds of things. Um, so, you know, I just got lots of fond memories from that. And, and I consider those 1977 and 78, those were the years that I began uh, with role-playing games. And they're mixed up in with a huge... Yeah, huge mess of stuff. It was kind of also right around then, I think, that the movie Alien came out. Maybe that was 79. Um, and it was R-rated, so I was too young to get in. And I remember reading the novelization so I could be a part of it. Um, it was also in 79 that we bought a TI-99-4A computer and one of the first home computers, 16K of memory. And uh, so just lots of cool things that happened around that era for me that that marked my transition from childhood into like early adulthood. And uh, so that's that's another form of beginning that I wanted to talk about. Finally, and I've talked about world building on a number of other podcasts, but um, I can't help but think about the beginning of a campaign and um, session zero in particular. And I never used to like the term session zero, but these days I really do. And uh, I really like the concept of it. Uh, and that is to, you, you, there's different ways to do this, right? But I mean, sometimes it is fun to just literally jump into the game and kind of reveal everything on the fly. But I like some collaborative world building from the start. Um, I like the players to be able to put things in the fictional universe that make them happy. And it seems like it bodes well for a longer game if we do that. And if we talk about some of the baseline things like how ubiquitous is magic and um, does the do alignments mean much, you know, are we going to use alignment languages and, and what is the kind of nature of the struggle between chaos and law, if there is one, those kinds of things are, and that's obviously kind of D and D specific, but um, I think this holds true for any game. And I think we've learned some things over the years from story games that have these kind of world building sheets at the beginning, like microscope um, games that, that, ask you to kind of think about the world. I even kind of wrote a campaign frame, uh, a starter called um, Pack World, which you can get at rayotis.itch.io. And it's a, it's a system agnostic frame around um, the fiction of a group of people connected by writing fantastic beasts, you know, fantastic and intelligent beasts. Uh, and of course that comes from my love of things like Dragon Riders or Pern. But uh, so where was I going with that? So I, I just think it's important to like, you know, think about how you begin a campaign. How do you get player investment? It's just like any project you would do at work or, uh, you know, anything you do with a group of people, it's going to go better if you secure buy-in from the beginning. If you round up a bunch of people who are sort of grudgingly or, or on guard, you know, against the event, it's not going to go well unless you're just really good, unless you just start off really well. Um, if your strength is running the game, then maybe, you know, the first session being an actual just jump people right into the game, maybe that is the way to get buy-in. And then maybe after that, session, you do a little bit of discussion, uh, have your session zero after se after session one, if you will. But I, I, I do think, I just think it's an, it's, if you've never done it, it's a neat thing to experience a session zero. It feels very casual. Like it's a nice kind of slow way to w work into a game and make everybody feel comfortable. So that was, that was the third 
iteration or a third context in which I wanted to talk about the beginning. And now I will, I will stop talking about the beginning and uh, do a quick bit on the rest of the words for this week. I'm probably not going to focus on any of them though. I haven't even bothered to think about uh, the rest of these words. I'm not even sure I know what they all are. So I'm looking at the, the little graphic here uh, that was made by autocratic um, with a K at the end. And used, I think if you go for the hashtag RPG a day, 2020, you'll find these little guides to, uh, the whole RPG a day, a conversation. Uh, the words are the words for the rest of the week are change, thread, vision, tribute, forest, and couple. Interesting. There doesn't seem to be any progression there that I can see. Um, so I don't have anything to say about change. I've got lots of things to say about change, but uh, nothing occurs to me in specific related to role-playing games. I used to have this kind of theory that I would talk about, which was the theory of change and how people react to it. And that theory is that in any given major change in your life, 10% of it is positive, like objectively positive, and 10% of it is objectively negative. And then how you feel about the rest of the 80% depends on who you are. So uh, for example, when I moved to California, there were some positives. I got more sunshine. I was closer to a beach, an ocean. Um, it, uh, I got a new job, right? I got paid more. I had more responsibilities. I had an exciting thing to do. Um, some downsides to that. We moved away from family. Um, everything was much more expensive. Uh, there, you know, there were some objective downsides to it. And so those are just things that you can't really argue with being better or worse. But then there's all this stuff in the middle, like people drive a little different in California. Um, they're mostly more polite, but there is one weird thing that when you're backing out of a parking spot in a parking lot, people don't like wait for you. They kind of gun their engine to get by you. And that was a weird thing to experience because in Indiana, it's sort of the opposite. If you see somebody backing out, you kind of stop so that they can back out. Um, and there's all these little changes, right. That weren't positive or negative per se. I don't know which one's right or wrong. I mean, that sounds like it has a side, but it really doesn't. Um, it might be more expedient for people to keep going. Um, uh, so all those other changes, it just kind of depends. Or if you're a positive person, all those seem like exciting new things. And if you're a negative person, all those seem uh, like wearisome, um, wearisome things that challenge your stability and your comfort. Uh, so that was my theory of change. We'll just move on then. Uh, threads. I just always think about things like, uh, well, like the GM mythic emulator or my own Oracle and the whole idea of a thread in an RPG and trying to, to follow threads and, um, really trying to reincorporate threads. So like I often stop at the end of a game and think about all the questions that are still open, that things that players are, you know, want to know about and how I can work some of those back in later in the game or people that uh, NPCs that we've lost track of uh, vision. <laughs> the only thing I think of here is how dumb, like all the various things are about dark vision and infravision and all that. It, it gets really tiresome. And then of course, half your party doesn't have it or, or whatever. And then it just gets all kind of wasted because somebody has to light a torch. Um, there's a running joke in fifth edition that everybody has dark vision. Uh, and it does seem like almost every class has dark vision. And it, it's one of those things that I think gamers would get sloppy about in shorthand because it's more annoying than fun to think about. If you're playing a really immersive kind of scary fun, um, you know, D&D dungeon crawl kind of game, then then vision can be a really exciting thing if you treat it carefully um, and, and really describe it. 
tribute. I don't know. You know, I always think of Rome, the word tribute for me has a very Roman connotation. I think about, you know, hail Caesar. Um, but, uh, I also think about PTA's fan mail and paying tribute to other players with, uh, mechanical things, which is a really cool idea for a game. So in, in, um, I'm not going to get this right because it's been ages since I read or played PTA primetime adventures, by the way. Um, uh, but if uh, another player does something you like, you can sort of throw them a card um, and it gives them like an advantage or something that they could spend later. So it would almost be like if inspiration in fifth edition was handed out by other players instead of by you, which not a bad idea. Um, number six, forest. Ugh, I think forests. Are, I love forests, but forests. Are, I grew up around a forest actually, and and um, I had a lot of happy childhood memories playing around in the forest. But I think as RPGs go, forests are kind of overdone, right? Um, maybe not done well because they're overdone. Because we we tend to like um, everybody's seen one, you know, in the game, and and it they just get shorthanded too much. We don't talk. There's all different kinds of forests, right? But we don't really spend a lot of time talking about what kind of forest the forest you're in is. Um, and so maybe a good thing there would be to like, think about trips you've taken where you've seen a different kind of forest that really impressed you like the redwoods or something. And, uh, the next time you have a forest in your RPG game, you describe it uh, using your memories there. And then, uh, seven couple, hmm. you know, there's not enough NPC couples are there. We always think of NPCs as singular. Um, and we don't very often make like a married couple or a partnered couple, um, in, in a game or, or twins or something like that. So that's a, that's an interesting thought. Um, it would be kind of cool to really focus on the next, you know, the next time you make an, an NPC roll a die. And if it comes up a one or a two, um, then, or let's just say if it comes up a two, because that would make sense. <laughs> if it comes up two, then you're, then you're going to make a couple, uh, instead of just a singular. Um, and maybe if it comes up six, you're going to make a family or something. Uh, uh, or a small group. And that, that would be kind of cool. Cause we, I think that there's not enough of that, right? Uh, there's a lot of things where NPCs have hooks into each other. Um, one needs something the other has, and that one needs something that a third person has, and each has something to offer that the, you know, the, the PCs that they want and, and you can sort of build those cool webs, but it's, uh, but I'm talking more about like uh, a couple that is functionally, I mean, there's so many interesting couples in fiction, right? Um, from Fafford and the Grey Mouser down to um, uh, what's uh, <laughs> Don Quixote and his little pal. I can't think of his name. Pancho Villa? No, I think I'm way off on that. Pancho Villa was like a, a bandit or something, wasn't he? I'm, I don't know. I, that was a should never have gone there. <laughs> <laughs> but there are all kinds of interesting couples in fiction. Um, uh, let's here's, here's another one. Uh, Theoden and in Lord of the Rings and Wormtongue, right. Um, are an interesting couple. Pippin and Mary are an interesting couple. Um, so there's just lots of different things to think about there, how people play off of each other. Um, Princess Bride, uh, you know, Miracle Max and his wife who nags him into performing the miracle. There's just, you can, there's a lot of juice there for GMs, a lot of cool things that you can do with it, but that brings us to the seventh word of this week, and I'll drop it until next week. I hope this was enjoying, uh, enjoyable for you. It was enjoyable for me. I like being challenged with something I haven't thought about ahead of time, you know, and just try to hit it extemporaneously. So that was that was fun. I hope it wasn't too uh, disjointed. Well, until next time, uh, I've been Ray Otis. 
talking to you in Plundergrounds mode. And my opening theme song is by Logan Howard. And I would just caution you to look out for those stinking rust monsters. <laughs>